We are in James chapter 1. James chapter number 1 this morning. James is the half-brother of Jesus. Jesus was born of a virgin teenage girl uh, out in the middle of uh, basically a farm, a stable. He was born in a manger during tax season. Later, his mom got married to a guy named Joseph, who was a carpenter, and they had kids. One of them was James, so James grows up with Jesus. Uh, James, however, doesn't believe the claims of his big brother, Jesus. G- James did not, uh, within Jesus' uh, life, believe that he was indeed God. Right? It takes a lot for your big brother to you know, become your God. He'd have to do something pretty crazy. Well, after Jesus dies on the cross in our place for our sins and then rises again from death, James sees his big brother, Jesus, after his funeral and says, you know what, I think you're right. You are my God. You are the Lord of glory. I worship. I bow down. I dedicate myself to you. James gets saved. And he doesn't just believe in his big brother, Jesus, being God. He even teaches and preaches that his big brother, Jesus, God. In fact, James becomes a pastor of the early church. He becomes a pastor of the church at Jerusalem, where you can read about early on in the book of Acts, and you see that there comes a time where they have something going on. It's really rough. It's persecution. In fact, James chapter 1, verse 1 says that James is writing to people who are scattered abroad. People came into their homes, their schools, their workplace. They knew that these folks were claiming Christ as the Messiah. This was very countercultural in that moment, very controversial. Not much has changed. They then kick these people out of Israel, out of Jerusalem, out of town. They're scattered to Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. And so they are going through something. And they're asking Pastor James back at their home church in Jerusalem, what on earth do we do? And so James is writing a letter to them, giving them, imparting to them some wisdom. I don't know about you, but we could all use some wisdom. I could use some wisdom. I think we're all in that same boat. It's good to have a little bit of extra wisdom. James gives us some extra wisdom, and it's not just any wisdom. It's not just, you know, fables, wives' tales, myths, folklore, teaching a point, the moral of the story. He is imparting to his people the wisdom of his brother, Jesus. He is giving them Jesus' wisdom. And today we're going to see that James imparts to his people Jesus' wisdom in the face of temptation. The face of temptation. So far in James chapter 1, what we've talked about is that he's given him Jesus' wisdom in the face of trials. Now he's going to talk about temptation. Trials are temptations to despair. What we're talking about today are temptations to sin. And the reason these go hand in hand, the reason that he talks about these things back to back is because many times our trials lead us to temptations. Many times our trials to despair lead us, our trials that tempt us to despair lead us to temptations to sin. Perhaps you're going through a financial trial, and so you're tempted to steal something, to steal something from work, to take something out of the register. Perhaps you're going through a family trial. You have conflict with your sister, and now you're tempted to punch her in the face. You see how this goes, right? Trials, temptations to despair sometimes lead us to temptation to sin, and James probably, as a pastor, this scattered people feels deeply for his church as they're facing great temptation. They're facing things they've never faced before because of their trials, facing temptations to sin in ways they've never sinned before because of their despair. They're persecuted. They're scattered abroad. So perhaps, maybe, they feel tempted to deny Christ. I, I, I'm, I'm far from home, I'm far from my job, I'm far from the family, maybe I'm going to give up on this Christianity thing. They're scattered, they're persecuted, maybe they're tempted to fight back. 
Someone kicks you out of your house. Someone kicks you out of town. Maybe you're tempted for an ungodly revenge. We know from the early scriptures that they're, uh, and things like Galatians, that they're tempted to mix Old Testament law with New Testament grace in order to appease the persecutors. Right. So instead of going all in for Jesus and his teaching that we're not under the law, that no work we do can earn us one ounce of favor with him, that nothing, we add nothing to our justification, that you can't make him love you anymore, and you can't make him love you any less. Hallelujah. They're tempted to add to that, well, circumcision still applies. Well, we still got to go to the temple. Well, we still got to fill in the blank. And they're tempted to put some falsehood with the truth to appease the persecutor. I don't know what they're tempted with, but they're tempted. James feels for them. And I want you to know this morning, I share James's heart as your pastor. I feel for you because I know you are facing temptations. Some of you are in severe, difficult, complicated, under complicated temptations, and you're in the fight of your life. I struggle with temptation. We all will go under temptation. And let me just tell you, I sympathize. I feel for you. I feel for you. I want you to know that you never, no matter what it is, you never have to hide your temptations at Griggs. Bring all your temptations with you to church so we can... Preach to them so that we can deal with them, so that we can pray through them, so that we can sing over them. Bring them all with you. I don't want anyone here to feel like you're the only one tempted, whatever it is you're tempted with. I don't want you to feel like you're the, the, the one who has to bear all this temptation alone. I feel for you like James feels for his people. I want for you what James wants for his people, and that is to walk through temptation with... The wisdom of Jesus. We want you to walk through temptation with the wisdom of Jesus. Well, how do we do that? Well, James gives us a couple things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in chapter 1. And one of the things he tells us to do is to study how temptation works. Study how temptation works. Look at verse 14 and 15. James 1, 14 and 15. It says... But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it brings forth sin. Sin, when it is finished, it brings forth death. In these two short verses, James does a deep dive into the inner workings. He, he lifts up the hood, if you will, to see just all the parts and how they go together when it comes to temptation. These two verses, as short and simple as they are, tell us all about how temptation works. Now, as much as you and I are tempted, you would think that we would be experts by now, right? Like, you'd think we'd be writing to James, like, listen, I know you grew up with Jesus out in Nazareth. You played t-ball with him. You were carpenters together. You know a lot. But let me tell you, I'm tempted enough to write this book. I'll just tell you. But the truth is, we're not. In fact, most of us, as much as we are tempted, are still as in the dark on how this thing works as when we first got saved. Even if that was a decade ago or two. Right? One of Satan's tactics is not just to tempt us, but to constantly blind us to how he's tempting us, when he's tempting us, where he's tempting us, with what he is tempting us. Not only does he tempt us, and that's blinding, but he blinds us from how he does it. So James, through the Holy Spirit and the grace, the great grace of God, says, let me expose this so you know what's going on, because this isn't that mysterious. Satan has blinded you, but God opens our eyes because he's so good. One of the things he says here is he says, temptation pulls on core desires. Every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust, his own sinful desires deep down in the heart and enticed. I love how James put this. He's actually using a fishing illustration here. You may not be able to catch it, but that idea of drawn away is the Greek word for lured. And that is the exact Greek word these guys, many of whom were fishermen, some of the earliest examples, that's the exact word they would use when they were out fishing, and a hook, catching a fish. Same word. 
I remember growing up, I spent a lot of weekends at my grandpa Kelly's house in Indianapolis. He lived in some apartments on a lake, and the lake was full of bluegill. And so we would always, not always, but often, sometimes, go get uh, his rods and his tackle box, go out to the lake, put the little worm-looking buggy thing on the hook, throw that thing out there, and wait. And, like, I don't understand. Like, I went to, just to, just, I, I just happened. I didn't go there on, like, my own volition. I was with a group of people, long story. I went to this place called Cabela's. Anybody ever heard of Cabela's? Raise your hand, Cabela's. Okay, they got a fishing, they got a fishing section, right? Big fi- fishing section. Man, they got all this technology for tricking a fish, right? They got apps. They got maps. They got, they got, like, I don't know, the thing looks like a nuke. They got all this stuff for, for, for something I could do when I was six, not tooting my own horn here, but I'm just saying, you just stick the bug in the water, and it's not long before a bluegill goes, it's my lucky day, right? He doesn't know there's no such thing as a free lunch, so he goes up for it, thinking something good is coming his way when something really bad is coming his way, thinking he's going to swim away with joy, but really he's pulled to his destruction, to a shore where he cannot survive until we throw it back in the water because we're humane, okay, and we're, we already got lunch covered, right? He can't survive. Here he is thinking it's the best day. It's the worst day. Here he thinks he's being blessed. He's being cursed. Here he is thinking he's going to get away with something. He's going to get caught. He thinks it's just bait, but it's not. It's bait and a hook. Satan is the same way with temptation. Temptation is the same concept, only in this case, we're the fish. We're the fish. So James is not much improving on the metaphor Jesus uses of we're the sheep. The Bible doesn't give us a whole lot of great animals to emulate, right? They're not like, guys are a bunch of lions. No, they're like, yeah, you sheep. Maybe a fish. I'll give you fish level. You got to fish level. Good job, right? The idea is Satan as a fisherman takes bait and he puts it out in front of us. And we, every time, are deceived into thinking it's something good for us when it's bad, when it's something that we can take away, when it takes us. When it's, we think it's something, we think it's just the bait. No, there's always a hook. There's always a hook. And we have to know everything about the situation or else we're the fish that gets caught in the temptation. We have to wake up. We have to realize. We have to open our eyes. We have to be sober and vigilant, 1 Peter 5, 8. For our, the devil is like a roaring lion who roars about seeking whom he might devour. You have to know this. You have to know what bait does the devil use on you? What bait does temptation use on you? And you need to develop personal standards around that bait, around that situation. This is the idea, right? Um, you know, this, uh, this idea is, look, it's going to be driven by your own lust. Lust being sinful de- desire. The idea is this is going to be specific to you. So you need specific personal standards. Here's what we believe about standards at Griggs. We believe that you should have high standards and you should have personal standards. So we're not going to tell you to have no standards. We're not going to tell you to have low standards, but these are personal. They're not something you force on everybody and they're not something you let everybody force on you because different bait catches different fish. I know you don't have to be a great outdoorsman to know this, right? I haven't been outdoors in 20 years, right? Like I'm, I'm a huge fan of Wi-Fi, cup of coffee, being inside. I try to stay in all day, but I still know different bait catches different fish. Different bait catches different fish. Satan uses different things to tempt different people, right? Satan uses different bait to catch us. We need to know what that is and develop personal standards around it, right? Some of you are here with a lot of standards that have been given to you, And it's not helping you fight sin because those standards don't pertain to your core lust, your desires. So you got standards, but not in the right place. You took mom and dad's standards or you took the church's standards, but you never developed your own, which are the ones that actually matter. Right? We all need our own standards because we all have our own temptations. I'll give it to you this way. 
I, for some reason or another, just do not struggle with drugs. Okay, I'm no better than a guy who struggles with drugs. I just don't happen to struggle with drugs. I already have a really weird imagination. I'm definitely already paranoid. I just don't need drugs, okay? So let me just tell you, I don't need to have a personal standard about what neighborhood I go into after 5 p.m. I can go into any neighborhood in Greenville at any time of day or night and leave drug-free on accident. It's like, well, you picked up fried chicken. Different sin, right? We're not talking about my sin. We're talking about your sin, right? You left with fried chicken, no drugs. What's the deal? Not my bait. It's not my bait. I never get hooked. It's not my bait. I don't need any standards around this. I'll tell you, I do need standards around saying no to extra work. Why? Because one sin I do struggle with is the fear of man. And the Bible says the fear of man is a snare. You could say it this way. Fear of man, that's a hook. See, I want the approval of man sometimes more than the approval of God. That's a sin. And if someone comes and asks me to do X, Y, and Z, I don't really want to do it. I may not even be able to do it. I could tell you stories about that. Yeah, I'll do that for you. I'm like, didn't even know what he said, right? Don't even know if that was in this country. I don't even know if that was today. 20 years from now, I may have just agreed to be a hitman for this guy. No clue what he said. But yeah, I'll do it because I want you to like me. Big idea is, I need to be able to say no. I'm afraid of what you think, so I take it on. Then I have too much because I'm idolizing what you think. So I need to have standards about what I say to and what I say no to. But you may not have that. Right? Someone asks you to do something and then you have no problem being like, do it yourself. I'm not your maid. Right? Like you have no problem saying that. Now you shouldn't say it. You should be nice. Be charitable. I mean, come on. But the idea is you just don't have to struggle with that. You don't need that standard. Big idea is we need high standards, but we do need personal standards around debate that we're tricked by. We're tricked by. You need to know what is your bait. What is your bait? And develop personal standards around it, personal convictions around it. You and the Holy Spirit get together. What are we going to do and not do in all these gray areas because we have this specific struggle. You need to know what you struggle with. Develop personal standards around it. You need to know why you're tempted and preach sermons about it. You need to know why you're tempted and preach sermons, gospel sermons to your own heart. Right? This is talking about deep desires. That's the idea of lust. These sinful desires that go way down. Right? We have to ask a question here. Why does the fish take the bait? That's a good question. Why does the fish go for the bait? Uh, it's because of who he is. His DNA, deep down who he is. I mean, the same bait does not catch uh, a, a lion. The same bait does not catch tiger, a bear, oh my, right? That same bait, nobody else wants. He wants the bait. Why? Well, he's a fish and this is fish food. We have to not know just what we struggle with, but we have to know why we struggle with it, which means we have to not just know what we struggle with on the surface, but why we struggle with it way down deep in the heart. We have to look below the surface, layer after layer, and unveil really what's going on down deep in the soul. Not just what we struggle with it, but why we struggle with it. And when we figure out why we struggle with it, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves. Right? So some of you in here, you might think you struggle with gossip. You struggle with gossip. Right? Always talking about somebody. And so you think, uh, I need to not listen to gossip. I need to not say that. I need to watch, what I, watch my mouth. Well, there's something deeper going on. It's not just that you need to watch your mouth. You need to look much deeper into the soul, much deeper, under layer after layer. And what you might find is that actually your core desire is to have a righteousness of your own, a righteousness that you earn. And when you gossip, it's really that manifesting itself. You bring somebody else down so that you're automatically lifted up and you're righteous. That's your core sin, is that you are not trusting in the all-sufficient righteousness imputed to you by Jesus through his blood, death, and resurrection. Listen, you can't improve on your record before God. You got Jesus' record before God. That's the gospel. He takes your sin. He gives you his righteousness. Hallelujah. 
That's good news. You can't come up with better news. And you need to preach that to your soul. Because that's why you're talking about everybody else. Some of you, you might think, hey, I struggle with materialism. So my standard, I need to say, I can only open so many credit cards. Can't open any more credit cards. That's my standard. Well, that'll work for like five minutes. And you'll be back at the mall. And you'll probably see me by the Auntie Anne's. Those pretzels are on point. All right, give me a slushie. Sit there. There twice a week. All right. Big idea, though. All right. You, you're going to the mall again because you didn't preach on something. You didn't preach the gospel to your soul. There's something deeper. You need to go layer after layer and find your struggle really isn't so much with materialism. Your struggle, your core sin is that you want to be worshipped. It's called pride. It's the same sin that got Satan kicked out of heaven. You want to be idolized. You want people to look at you, look at what you have, and in a sense, bow down so that you have some sense of self-worth, some sense uh, of validation for your existence, that others see you and glorify you. Well, what's the truth? The truth is, is you are nothing to glory in, that you are not heaven. You are not Jesus. You are not a savior. But Jesus, the Savior, came down from heaven. He shed his precious blood in your place with you on your mind. He gave you new life through his resurrection. He sent you his Holy Spirit. And now you get a whole new life with some actual meaning of not just not trying to be worshipped, but worshipping. Not trying to attract people by what brand is outside of you but trying to win people to Christ by the Holy Spirit that is in you, this is the good news. And you need to preach the gospel down deep into the soul, right where your, your real motivations really are. You have to study why. Why does this work on me? What am I tempted with and why am I tempted with it? This is walking in the wisdom of Jesus in the midst of temptation. What else does James say? James also talks about this. Not only just study how temptation works, but remember, remember how temptation ends. Look at verse 15. Verse 15, it says, then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it's finished or when it's fully grown, it has a child of its own. It bringeth forth death. Okay, so James switches metaphors. He goes from the fishing metaphor to the metaphor of motherhood and childbearing. Right? Very interesting illustration. This is the illustration he chooses to use. The idea is guy meets girl, fall in love, they get married. It's not long after they have a child. They multiply. Right? There's another person in the room. It gets bigger. The family does. Okay? So the idea here that he's using is when temptation and your core lusts, your core sins, your core desires, when those two things meet, it's not long before they have a child, and the name of that child is sin. Right? Like, it's really, really weird to talk baby names on the first date. Right? Like, you may want to run on that one. Right? Leave a tip, but run, okay? That's not good. That might be a little unhealthy. might be a little too fast. You don't know his middle name, but you know your kid's name. you got a problem. Sin on the first, or temptation rather, on the first date tells you exactly what's coming, right? Sin. Having a child. It's the name. Sin. Sin. Sin then grows up. That's verse 15. When sin is finished, this is the idea that he grows up. He has a kid. That kid's name? Death. And so when temptation and your core desires meet, they have a kid named Sin, they got a grandkid named Death. It makes you not want to go on a date. It makes you not want to flirt with sin, doesn't it? And that's James's whole point. He's trying to say, remember how this ends. Right? Like you want to get revenge on your persecutor? Right? You want to go and get back whoever kicked you out of town? You want, to, you want to get revenge? Remember, this is going to end in death. Sin and death. Right? You want to deny Christ and go back to the temple and act like you really didn't feel the power of the Spirit convict you and draw you in because you want to live in Jerusalem that bad? Hey, remember how that ends. Sin and death. 
right? You want to you wanna mix the law with grace, and you want to start this whole quasi-Jewish thing, Jewish Christian thing that isn't really what Jesus was bringing with his kingdom because you're so afraid of what everybody thinks. Hey, you know how that ends? Sin and death. Sometimes it's good when we're fantasizing about sin to fantasize about how it ends, right? Remember how it ends. It's not good. Sin and death. They always, temptation's goal is sin. I want you to understand that temptation doesn't have any other goal but to get you away from the Lord to get you to break his law, to get you to hurt yourself by not staring at him, but gazing on your idols. Right? I want you to understand, temptation doesn't just go away if you give in this one time because it's just, oh, it's over. No, it's always sin and more and more sin. The more you give in, the more frequently it comes back, the stronger it comes back. Oftentimes, we do not understand how this ends. Right? Let me give you an example. This is just one that comes to mind. Peer pressure, often with high school, high school, tough time high school, right? If the Catholics are right, purgatory is real, it's probably a high school, right? Just lunch part, right? Which table? Forever. I don't know. Who am I? Right? High school. And a lot of high schoolers, I was a youth pastor, believe it or not, for five years. That's what's wrong with America. And I was a youth pastor for five years, gave it my... Um, and a lot of them think, I'm going to give in to peer pressure now in high school because as soon as graduation comes and goes, right, this is all over. And I'm going to get a job, and I'm going to live normally, live right, be a citizen, good, upstanding person. I'm just giving in now, but I do have plans for my future. It's as if you give in now, it'll be done with you, and then you can move on. That is not how temptation works. Because peer pressure, for example, does not shake hands and die at graduation. Believe it or not, peer pressure can follow you into college. Any college students here? Can peer pressure follow you into college, yes or no? Yes. It can be bad. It can be worse than high school. Guess what? Peer pressure can follow you into your early 20s as a young family. Peer pressure can follow you into your first job. It can follow you into your office job. Peer pressure can follow you all the way up the corporate ladder in front of the board of directors. You're an old, wealthy woman, CEO on the cover of Forbes, and you're giving in peer pressure. It never goes away. It never ceases. It never stops just because you gave in once. It's just going to get stronger and stronger, more and more. Remember how this ends. It ends in death. It feels like it's bringing you life in the first moment, but in the latter moments, it brings you death. It might be a physical death. People die because of their sin. It happens all the time. It might be a spiritual death. It might be an emotional death. It might be relationship death. It might be a uh, a financial death, it might be all kinds of things, but it's not life. It's never life. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. In Jesus is life, the light of men. Jesus breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Everything outside of Jesus, death. Death. This is why when it comes to temptation, the main commandment in the scripture is Flee, right? Like, I don't know about you. I'm not, I'm not a runner. I'm not a runner. Right? I saw downstairs, we got a school going on. Josh talked about the SCORE program because they're not going to school because of COVID. They're coming here to work on their virtual stuff. The teachers have some rules, and there's consequences. The first consequence is a warning. The second consequence is you got to run two laps at recess. The third consequence is you have to go home. If I was one of those kids, I would just skip right to number three, Right? Two laps for talking? I'm not running two laps for murder. Like, get me out of here. Like, right? Two laps. What am I? I can't, I'm not a cheetah. I got asthma. Two, I'm not running. But here's where I should be running from temptation. The commandment of the scriptures, flee. It's never like, figure it out. Meddle with it. Outsmart it. Flee. 1 Peter 5, 9, resist the devil. James, later on, 4, 7, resist the devil. Flee also, youthful lust. Flee from sexual immorality. Flee. It's a verb, and we got to do it. 
Some of us, we're treating temptation right now, right now in this room, right now in your life, right now where you're at in this stage. You are treating temptation like Jurassic Park. Park, it's okay. I know, Baptist Church, right? We watch movies time to time, try to edit, whatever. Okay, raise your hand if you've ever seen Jurassic Park. All right, church discipline, put your hand down. Okay. I know that ain't PG or whatever the lowest one, G. Okay, anyway, here's the point. Jurassic Park is a fascinating little movie. Actually, it's a fascinating five movies. Five movies. Five movies. I think they're uh, milking this franchise. Because here's the deal. Scientists recreate dinosaurs. Great idea, guys. Scientists recreate dinosaurs from fossil DNA, and they put them in a park. And then they invite people to that park. And people go, and they see how this plays out. Some of you with temptation, when it shows up, rather than flee, you walk in and say, let's see how this plays out. As if it's a mystery on what's going to happen. As if there's more than one possibility. You walk into a park of dinosaurs, shocker, everybody's killed, everybody's friends are killed, and then next year, another Jurassic Park. More people are eaten, but let's, hey, let's try it again. By Jurassic Park 5, you think they should get the idea that dinosaurs don't like being looked at by bystanders. They're hungry. They eat you. But still, Jurassic Park 5, let's go see the dinosaurs. Oh, they ate me. What is happening? You don't go towards it. You run from it. That's the message of the Bible when it comes to temptation. Temptation is not something you explore. It is not something you wonder about. It is not something you flirt with. It is not something you check out. You do not see how it plays out because it only plays out one way. Remember the end of this thing, sin and death. Sin and death. We should run. Flee. I love how simple that is. God, he doesn't make it complicated on his kids. Run. Run. But we don't run. We complicate run. Flee. We complicate flee. Here's what we do. Let me tell you some mistakes we make when it comes to this commandment to run. To run. Well, first thing we like to do is we like to ask God to make the temptation run. Right? God told you to run, and you're like, God, will you please take away this temptation? Make this temptation run. Why do we do that? Why don't we obey, but rather propose a plan B? Okay, God, you told me to run. Now I'm going to ask you, why don't you make the temptation run? Why do we do this? Well, partly, and this is why I do it, we're lazy. We don't want to do anything, go anywhere, change our lifestyle, change habits, get accountability, change routines, change friends, whatever. We don't want to work on all that. So God, you make temptation run. I'm not going to, you make temptation run. Sometimes we ask God, hey, make this temptation run because we misunderstand our role in temptation. We misunderstand our role completely. Listen, listen, I need you to get this. Okay? Temptation is not a chance for God to obey you. Temptation is an opportunity for you to obey God. Make sure you get this. I'm tempted. God, you do this, this, and this. That is not the relationship you have with God. Yes, he's a father, friend, brother, he, we're the bride, he's the groom. All that's all applied, but there's also a sense in which he is king. You obey him, and he told you, run. That's the message of the Bible. That's the wisdom of Jesus when it comes to temptation. Your job is to run, not God's, to make the temptation run. When you want to ask, God, why don't you just take this temptation away? A better question to ask yourself is, why am I not taking myself away from the temptation? Run. Remember how it ends. Remember how it always ends. Run from temptation. Where do you run to? You run to Jesus. Jesus. Jesus himself said in the garden to his disciples, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. I mean, come to me. Come to God for your temptations. 
When we're tempted, we're supposed to be running to Jesus. Sometimes we don't because we don't want to. We want our sin. Sometimes we don't because we think we can handle it on our own. I can manage my sin. Sometimes we don't run to Jesus because, and this is the big one, we mistakenly blame Jesus for the temptation's existence in the first place. We blame Jesus rather than run to Jesus. Do you do this? Do you ever, are you ever tempted to blame Jesus for your temptation? It's an easy trap. The early church could have very well been in this trap. James is writing to people scattered abroad because of persecution. They easily could deduce, like, hey, Jesus, if you wouldn't allowed all this persecution, we'd have no reason to deny you. Jesus, you wouldn't allow those guys to kick us out of town. We'd have no thirst for revenge. Jesus, if, if you would have done one of those miracles and you, protected, and you would have protected us, we wouldn't be so bitter. We wouldn't be so unforgiving to those who have caused us harm. This is all on you. Like Adam in the garden, it's the woman you gave me. She's defective. Gave me an apple. I didn't know what it was. It was her. Right, to err is human. To blame God for your error is the most human thing. It's more human. We mistakenly believe that all of this is Jesus' fault. James said it's not. It's not wisdom to come to temptation and blame it, place it on Jesus. So he says, study how temptation works. Remember how temptation ends. Don't blame Jesus for your temptation. Run to Jesus in your temptation. Look at verse 13, James 1.13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Where are you tempted to blame God? What blame do you lay on God? What blame do you put at God's feet? What blood are you trying to put on God's hand? Because the only blood on his hands was the blood you were supposed to shed. Amen? Amen. That cross in the middle was supposed to be yours. Hallelujah. And it's not. Where are you tempted to blame God? Maybe it's cheating in school. God, if you'd make me smarter, wouldn't have to do that. Uh, maybe it's cheating on a spouse. God, if you'd make them better, I wouldn't have to do this. Maybe it's some other sexual sin. God, you gave me this biology. What am I supposed to do with it? Maybe it's lying. God, uh, if my family wasn't so judgmental, I could tell them the truth instead of lie to them. It's you, God. It's you. You're the problem. If you're tempted to blame God for your temptation, I want to tell you a couple things. First, I have done that. You and me, we're no different. You think I'm different because you only see me on Sundays. Right? I'm the same person you are. I have blamed God for my temptation more than once. I get this. I feel for you on this. I understand this confusion. I'm right there with you. Another thing I want to tell you, God is right there with you. I want you to understand this. We need to know that God can handle your blame. He's, he can take it. Okay? God is not so weak that you say one wrong thing about him, and he's like, whatever, I'm out. Right? God's able to take all your confusion. He, under, he even sympathizes with it. If it's a logical conclusion, sometimes to our, inf, uh, to our finite minds, to our finite minds, it's a logical conclusion. right? Like, well, it must have been God. He's the one in control. He sympathizes with how you got there. And he's able to take you in, even in your blame. Even though you're against him, he's for you. Hey, you might be mad at God, but through the cross and what Jesus did for you, God's not mad at you. All his wrath was taken out on Jesus. You get nothing but grace, grace, grace. It's all grace for you. See, that sounds like hyper grace. It's the hyperest. It's hyper than hyper grace. There ain't no wrath. There is therefore now... No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. Okay. Take your blame and still have you. I, want, I saw this the other day in my own life. I'm a father of two kids. They're both great. Three and five, Alden and Marin, preschool and kindergarten. Love this age. Marin has some anger issues. I'm not going to lie. She doesn't get it from me. I'm going to leave you to the conclusion of the rest. I'm not, um, just kidding. Obviously, it's a joke. Don't tell Joanna. She's in kids' ministry. She will leave the church. So here's the idea. Right, um, 
Marin the other night had to go to bed. It was bedtime. And I said, Marin, you could stay up a little later and watch me play this video game on my phone. That's how nice I am. I said, hey, I'm going to play a video game. You can watch. Well, I go to play the game on my phone, and I lose in like two minutes. So I was like, ah, time's up. Go to bed. And she throws a tantrum. And I know she's going to get in trouble, so I'm getting her in trouble. I'm going through all this. And she says, it's your fault. You lost in two minutes. I hear I am thinking I'm staying up all night. And in two minutes, she said, she literally verbalized this as a five-year-old. I thought it would be longer. It's on you, Dad. Now, in this, every illustration breaks down. She might have a point. Here's the idea, though. Right? She's still in disobedience, and she's disobeying and blaming me. And guess what? I could take it. I didn't walk out on the family. I didn't say, until you get right, we're not in fellowship. I put her to bed. I read her three stories. I tucked her in. I sang her three songs. God can take you. All your fits, bring them in. All your pain, bring it in. All your confusion. Even if you're wrong, God can take it. But let me tell you this, you are wrong. It is not God's fault. And you are sinning by blaming him. Because the Bible here clearly says, let no man say, when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. It's not him. You're mad at the wrong guy. You're wrong. He can't be tempted, so he doesn't tempt. You see, you and me, we can be tempted, and we can tempt one another. Right? Like, I'll, let me, I'll give you this example. Right? Marijuana. Marijuana. I have never been walking through a field and been like, oh, look at this plant. Maybe I should roll it and light it on fire just see what happens but i've seen marijuana not in the field where it's growing a friend who was tempted and trying to tempt me god is not like your buddy who's trying weed in eighth grade and getting you in on it he's not tempted he doesn't want anything to do with it so he can't want any of it for you god does not tempt us because he is not himself tempted it is against his nature to tempt. It is not in him. There is no evil desire in God. There is nothing at his core that would make him want sin for himself or sin for you. It's against his nature. Now, obviously, this brings up some good questions about Matthew 4. Like, well, what was going on? Satan tempted Jesus, and yet here it says Jesus wasn't tempted. Well, we actually have a whole sermon about this way back in the podcast from probably over a year ago. But here's what I believe, agree to disagree, how we nuance it. I think he was impeccable. I think that Jesus couldn't sin. I do not think that Satan was seeing if he would sin, but that God was proving he would never sin. That's what I think. I think that his divine nature, there was nothing that could hook him. There was no bait that could reel him in. I believe that he was being tested as not a way to see if he was God, but to prove that he was God and sinless. That's what I believe. That's a roller coaster. Okay, you know, you guys like roller coasters. You pay an exorbitant amount of money to go stand in line for two hours to be terrified for two minutes, kind of nauseous. Get that $20 photo of your face in the G-Force looking like Yzma from Emperor's New Groove. <laughs> you know, you go, they test those things in the morning. You say, do they test them? So see, they're not going in and go, I wonder if this will work today. We got thousands of people coming this morning to ride this. Let's see if it works. Give it a whirl. No, they got like 400 computers hooked up. They know every inch of this thing. They're running it to prove we're good to their insurance. It'll never fall. Look, if it was going to fall, we'd have 40 different monitors right here telling us, we'll run it so that we could say we ran it and prove to you this is safe. Jesus ran through the temptation of the devil, 40 days of fasting out in the wilderness, isolated by himself, quotes Deuteronomy three times, ends the devil packing. Jesus has victory over temptation. All victory. Because it doesn't appeal to his nature. He is only good, only holy, only righteous, only perfect, only God. Nothing in him wants temptation for himself. Nothing in him wants it for you. He has nothing inside of him that desires you to be tricked or to trip up or to fail. 
He only wants what is good. All things work together for good to those who love God according to his purpose. Additionally, this is not his agenda. I just want to, it says, neither tempteth he any man. It's not his agenda. It's not what he came to do. He didn't go from heaven to earth, die a bloody death on a Roman cross at the hands of professional executioners so he could bring you more temptation. He did this to deliver you from temptation. First John says he didn't come to participate in the works of the devil. He came to destroy the works of the devil. John, in uh, his gospel, chapter 14, doesn't say, he doesn't send us a demonic spirit. He sends us the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, when you're tempted, Jesus always makes a way of escape. He doesn't put you in a cage. He opens the door so that you can run. So here's the deal. When you're tempting, tempted to blame God for your temptation, you're wrong. God is not the one tempting you. If you're here this morning and you are tempted to take your own life because you believe God must want you dead, you're wrong. If you're here and you are tempted to run off on your spouse with someone else because you think God must want me to be happy, you're wrong. If you're here and you are tempted to give up on his church because you went through a crazy one when you were younger and have all these wounds, I feel for you, those are real wounds, but you're wrong. He's not the one tempting you. Here's what this means. Big idea. Don't hate God, hate Satan. You're mad at the wrong guy. Let me just tell you one thing we're not great at. We don't hate Satan enough. You do not actively hate Satan and his demonic forces, principalities and powers, dark places enough. You that love the Lord, evil, Psalm says. We need to hate Satan more. You are mad at the wrong guy. You should be bitter. You should hold a grudge. You should be furious for what that serpent did thousands of years ago. Hate the right guy hates Satan. He is the one who has tempted and accused the brethren. He is the one who seeks to devour. He is like a thief and a robber seeking to kill and destroy. He is the one who hell was prepared for in the first place. You're mad at the wrong guy. And if you're at temptation, you need to get mad at the right guy. Hate Satan. Don't tend to rub shoulders as much with them. They don't tend to laugh at his jokes as often. They don't tend to make light of his destruction when they read about it. They don't tend to blame God. They blame him and they take the blame rightfully to them and they run to God away from temptation. That's Jesus' wisdom in temptation. When it comes to temptation... Don't hate God. Love God. Don't blame God. Run to God. Don't blame God. Praise God. Let's look at one more verse. James 1, 16 and 17. 1, 16 and 17. Check this out. It says, Do not err, my beloved brethren. James 1, 16. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And it comes down from the Father of lights, the one who said, there is light, let there be light, the one who made the stars, with whom there is no variableness nor shadow of turning. He never changes. He's good. He's only good. These early Christians, they saw Jesus rise from the dead, many of them, saw the Holy Spirit fall, tongues of fire, thousands of people getting saved. And now you're a little while later, maybe a few years later, whatever it is, they're scattered. Maybe Jesus changed. He didn't. He didn't. He's still the good and perfect gift. He's still the good God. Taste and see. The Lord is good. So instead of blaming God for temptation, praise God in your temptation because He's with you all the way through it, giving you gifts, helping you fight it. 
And all our good comes from God. All good things we ha- comes fr- from the Father of lights. His Son came down from the Father, and He ransomed you from your captor, the devil, by shedding His blood. His Spirit came down from the Father, and He convicts you of sin, righteousness, and judgment that you might be able to bear your temptation, notice your temptation, and flee temptation. His grace comes down from the Father of lights that you might praise Him, for through His grace He's with you in the temptation. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. And that's the point I want to end on. This is something I want to end on here. There's just so much grace in temptation. You got nothing but grace coming your way in temptation. To this this end, all good gifts come from the Father of lights. One of his gifts is his grace. Here's what that means. God is with you before the temptation. God is with you during temptation. God is with you after temptation, whether you pass or fail. Whether you pass or fail. There's a story in Luke 22 of Jesus with his disciples. He's talking to them and he zeroes in on Peter. And here's exactly what Jesus says about Peter, who's about to majorly fail temptation. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, when you come back to me, when all this is over, after you pick yourself up, after you fail, strengthen your brothers. Get back in the game. Peter said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows three times, you will, or twice you will deny me three times. So Jesus comes to Peter and he says, listen, you're about to face temptation and the devil's trying to destroy you, but I interceded for you. By the way, he still intercedes for us. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And he goes, you're going to fail, but after you fail, I want you to preach. After you fail, strengthen your brothers. I want you to lead. After you fail, get back in the game. Because even though you're going to fail, I'm going to use you. Even though you're going to fail, I'm going to bless you. Even though you're going to fail, I'm going to be with you. As powerful as temptation is, make no mistake, nothing can separate us from the love of God. No man can pluck us out of his hand. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I want you to know this. Temptation is going to come. Sometimes you will have victory. You will run. Sometimes you will stay and you will fail. But God will never fail to be there for you. God will, is so powerful. His grace is so magnificent that he can use the failure, bless the failure, and be with the failure forever and ever. And I just want you to know that's my story. And if you're really thinking about it, that's your story too. That it's, that, that, that it's not so powerful that somehow it can whisk you away from the grace of God. He's with Peter before. He says, I'm going to be with you after. I got a job for you to do after. And he says that to you today. I got grace for you before. I got grace for you during. And I know it may not go well. I got grace for you after. Nothing but grace. God's grace. Oh yeah, sin doth abound. But grace does must more abound. Hallelujah. There's more. Greater than all our sin. I love that. So don't blame him. Praise him. Praise him before. Praise him during. Praise him after you sin because there's something to praise him for. He's still with you. Jesus said all this to Peter at the Last Supper. And so we're going to remember that now. We're going to do communion. As you came in, hopefully you got a communion cup. And we're going to have some singers come up, musicians come up. They're going to play a song. And you 